Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the Alfa Romeo Driver podcast, brought to you by the Alfa Romeo Owners Club. I'm Guy Swalbrick and this afternoon I have with me Jamie Porter, owner of the Alfa Workshop and of course regular Alfa Romeo Driver columnist. Good afternoon, Jamie. Hello, Guy. How are you? Oh, very well, thank you. Obviously, we'll get on to your business, which is probably how people are most familiar with you later. But I just wanted to start with with kind of how we ended up here in the in the end. So how did you end up owning your first Alpha and what was it? First Alpha was an Alpha Sud Sprint KMR 766X. It was dark blue and it all came up. Uh, came to be with a, me and Ted Pearson, who used to race Alphas, used to drink in the same pub. And he effectively said, Jamie, the car you're driving is pretty awful. Why don't you try an Alpha Sud? So I went and tried a Sud Sprint and fell in love with it instantly, as everyone of our generation did. The Sud was the car converted so many Alfisti to the mark. Yeah, I think in pretty much every podcast we've done so far, this is the point at which I say, yeah, my first car was a Sud Sprint as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, still today, you get customers come in and their first car was a Sud. And I hate to say it, you don't really see that anymore with Alfa Romeo. The Julia is absolutely stunning to drive, as is a Stelvio, but you can't afford them. Yeah. Normal people can't afford them to learn what Alpha's about. If we could get everyone in a Julia, we'd sell them to the whole world. But unfortunately, they're out of most people's price range. Yeah, and, and hopefully that's that's going to change slightly with the, the Tonale and the the rumoured Brunero, Brunaro, whatever it is, the um, the sub B segment SUV they're talking about. So, Alpha is all about small sports cars. Yes, coupes, spiders. If you look at the cars people collect today, first and foremost, it's spiders. Then it's coupes. And when do you ever see a saloon from the sixties? They are so rare. Yeah, and that shows what people like back in the day. And nothing's going to change over the next 10, 15, 20 years. People buy what they wanted when they were kids yeah. in our sort of field. You know, once you've been converted to Alpha, yes, you will go and buy a Julia. But it's not going to bring you into the mark. No. And I think even if you look at more modern cars, because I'm the 939 Spider Registrar, I spent quite a lot of time looking at the, the DVLA, how many are left kind of data. And actually, if you, even if you look at the 939 cars, 159s are in terminal decline. But nearly every spider that was bought is still there. And, and there's still about 90% of the Breras are still still around. Yeah. I just hope that the, the merger with Peugeot will bring a, bring a bit more life back to the mark. I have a feeling it will, because the new CEO is into his sport car, sports cars, allegedly. Not that I've met him personally, <laughs> but, you know, allegedly he's into his sports cars. And he's got to see where the peaks of Alpha sales have always been. Yeah. 
Oh, we've, we've got a feature in the, the February issue, which will be out about a week after this podcast comes out, about what we what we think Stellantis might do with the Alpha brand. And I think the good news for Alpha fans is if you look at the 14 brands they've got, there's a whole bunch of them that all sit together in the bottom corner of the market with Peugeot, Citroën, Vauxhall, Opel, Fiat to a certain extent, doing more or less the same thing. And then in that space that it's kind of the has become the BMW, Mercedes, Audi, sporty saloon car space with with some coupes and spiders. There's there's nothing else in the portfolio other than Alpha. So if they want to compete compete there, they haven't really got another brand they can do it with. Unless they use Maserati or Lancia. Well, Lancia's pretty much dead. It makes a tiny little thing in Italy only. They sell 30,000 of those tiny little things in Italy only. So they're actually not far off Alpha's volume, but you're right. <laughs> but they're only 10 pence each. <laughs> well, it's, it's an interesting niche because Stellantis actually refer to Lancia as a luxury brand. And we were talking about this the other day. Italy's probably the only market where you've got people whose who's real car is a Merc or even a Maserati but who live somewhere like Luca, where the car's just too big. So they buy they buy the Lancia so that they can drive in their hometown in something that feels a bit posher than a 500, but is the same size as a 500. And, and I don't, that just doesn't exist anywhere else. I love Fiat 500s. I didn't say, did I say that on this podcast? <laughs> I'm sure I shouldn't have said that. My wife has one. They are fantastic, they're fantastic little cars. <laughs> they are fantastic. So, so yeah, I mean they're very similar, obviously, to the Mito. Yeah, chassis-wise, and so we're obviously quite used to that. It's quite a good fun thing. The Mito is quite a good fun thing as well. The the other thing about the five hundred, I think, is you know there's a lot of um, concern amongst Alpha owners that the the small uh, SUV, the the Brenaro, Brenaro, um, is going to be built in Poland at Tici, and therefore won't be Italian. But I don't think I've ever heard anybody complain that their Fiat 500 isn't Italian enough, and they're all built in Poland. True, true, yeah. I mean, a lot of stuff in the Fiat brand does come out of Poland. You see a lot of their products coming from there. Yeah. When we're buying stuff in, you see, you know, made in Poland, all that sort of stuff at work. Yeah. So a lot of the products, I think shock absorbers and stuff, they're all made in Poland. So saying it's all made in Italy... It's not quite right. Yeah. It's all assembled in Italy, but it's not yeah. Yeah. made in Italy. It's made worldwide. Yeah. Whoever can make it nowadays. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, so we've digressed a bit. Oh, that was an interesting digression. So you started with the Alpha Set. Now, this is a really complicated question for somebody in your line of work, but do you actually know how many Alphas you've owned since that first Alpha Set? Not a clue. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea. Today, as of today, I've got more alphas than I've got fingers and toes. <laughs> so I've lost count now. And, and apart apart from the suits that we know you, you had a soft spot for, any particular favourites out of the alphas that you've had? It's horses for courses with alphas. Um, if I wanted to go from here to Milan, the ultimate car is an SZ. You can get to Milan 
get out in Milan, after driving all the way down there in an SZ, and be fresh as a daisy. Once, many years ago, we used to import a lot of SZs to the UK. And I bought one, where was it? Mantova, just south of the Alps. Yep. I bought it in about February. So it's all snowy over the Alps. I drove it from there back through the Brenner Pass, down into Austria, up over the Fern Pass, through Germany, got to Aachen, turned left through Holland and uh, Brussels and all that, and then back onto the ferry. I left there at about six o'clock in the morning, and I got home to Royston at 5.30 in the evening. My wife, who flew out there, <laughs> left an hour earlier and got back home an hour earlier. So we did a Top Gear special before Top Gear did a Top Gear special. Brilliant. Yeah, it was great fun. There was two of us driving, and as soon while we're driving through Italy over the Brenner, you you had to limit your speed because the roads were, were just ice and snow everywhere. You know, snow was six foot high. But you dropped down into Austria and you started opening up in an SZ. By the time we were into Germany, we were doing 100, 120 mile an hour, stop for fuel, change drivers, and onward. Eventually, when we got to just coming out of Brussels, I looked in my rear view mirror and I was doing about, I don't know, somewhere in excess of the speed limit by a significant amount, I seem to remember. Anyway, I looked in the rear view mirror and it was a three lane motorway. And on the offside, a Ferrari was just about to come past, and it was being raced by a Porsche that was in the inside lane, and they went past me like a ton of bricks. But I got back to uh, Royston. I felt so good, so fresh. Couldn't do that in another car. Well, I've said that. Maybe a Julia. A Julia, a powerful Julia would do that nowadays. Yeah. The 280 or the... 505 horsepower, 510 horsepower, whichever you think. Yeah, awesome car. Fun down the lanes. So it's still the third, I think. Um, realistically, what else would I have? Uh, fun at legal speeds. Bertone Coupe. If you go into a roundabout in a Bertone Coupe, it's got, by modern standards, so little grip, it will go sideways at 25 mile an hour. And right. you're like, okay, I'm actually enjoying myself controlling a car at a speed where I'm not going to get my license torn up by the constabulary. They're just brilliant because the, the, the competency level fits with the speed limits. Right. They're brilliant things. So I'd say probably... The three, my three favourite alphas are the SZ, the Sud, and the Bertone Coupe. Okay. I've still got the second alpha I ever owned, which is a Bertone Coupe, which I bought back in 1988, I think. And it's a, yeah, beautiful car, beautiful car to drive. I'm fairly we're making the new one. So it wasn't in your list of, of favourites, but I came to see you a couple of years ago now with the Stelvio compare it with your v8 powered matter so where's that at the moment that's just gone into the workshop literally yesterday to have major surgery 
Um, cosmetic surgery or? Oh no, <laughs> a major graft. Um, what we found is with that engine, it was too powerful for the gearbox. So the gearbox, if you can imagine, is like a U shape with an open top. Okay. And when you start getting a lot of power through the gearbox, the top of the gearbox opens. So the gears move apart in the gearbox and then it starts ripping the teeth off gears. So it's done it about three times now. And I've got bored with that. So I'm going to put a two liters to Nord engine in it out of a G old Julia, which is about 130 horsepower, which it should be able to cope with. But the Montreal engine is being extracted from the matter to go in one of Richard Norris of Classic Alpha's 33 Stradali replicas. Very nice. Yeah, so that's where that's heading. So we'll have a, well, we won't, a customer will have a 33 Stradali replica with a very original looking chassis and the, the proper engine. I know it's not quite, this yeah. Stradali had a two litre and this is 2.6, but it's the same, looks the same. Essentially, yeah. once you've fiddled with it, it will look as a Stradali. So someone's in for a little treat. Yeah, sounds very nice. Yeah, so that's what we're doing with the matter. Okay, so you're obviously an alpha owner before you had the business. How did how did you end up turning your your passion into your livelihood? We've all got a problem, alpha owners. It's I don't know whether you ever saw the advert. It was a vial of what was it vaccine, and on the side of it. It's got a little triangle and it's got virus alpha. Brilliant advert. I thought it was fantastic. I think it was in the 60s or early 70s it came out. Yeah, I think it was It was a French advert, wasn't it? It was an yeah. Alfa Romeo France advert. I soon realised that I'd got virus alpha. And the only real way to support virus alpha is to have lots of them. Therefore, you have to know how to repair them. And as I was always ready in the motor trade, I was working, I started my apprenticeship on Land Rovers, then went to Vauxhall and finally to Volkswagen. And then I started up on my own. So virus alpha is the cause of me starting my business. I got infected at an early age and I couldn't shake it. And, and did, you, did you sort of jump in at the deep end or was it a sort of hobby business that became a a full-fledged business. It was always something I'd planned to start on my own. So I started off as doing it weekends, then built to, then built up and built up and built up till we're the size we are. I mean, we've only, we've just recently moved to a new unit about two years ago. Yeah. And compared with what we had when we started, I mean, I started with a, it's effectively a double garage. It was slightly bigger than that. You had room to take engines out, but yeah. it was effectively a double garage. And the, the transformation over, what, 26, 27 years? Amazing. Even I don't believe it. Um, and it's thanks to all the customers out there that we have been so successful. And there's there's kind of two major parts of the business, isn't there? There's, a, there's the workshop and there's a parts business. 
how different are the challenges between running those those two sides of the business? I love the workshop. I absolutely love the workshop. And I do in some ways find the parts side a little bit of a chore. It's not my thing looking through 10,000 product lines to see who's doing something 10p cheaper. It just doesn't float my boat. Yeah. I have to do it, but it's not exciting. I like to be out there with a, a 4C and go, I've cured that problem. That car came in with that. A bit like the front geometry, where it came in when Alpha finished it, and everyone in the UK was complaining, it doesn't feel quite right. And me and a friend from Lotus went out, tried it, had a chat, we decided what to do, and we changed the geometry. And we managed to make it work properly, properly, a lot better for the UK roads. There's still some more work to do there, which we're doing at the moment, but it is now, for UK roads, 90% better than it was. On a track, you have to respect what Alpha did. Yeah. If you drive one on the track, it is a proper tool. It is really, really quick. Can get a bit um, frisky sometimes. Um, we took uh, one to the Nürburgring on the standard geometry, and it did try to kill Ted Pearson. <laughs> it had a good go at him. <laughs> it nearly threw him sideways into a crash barrier where I think Ayrton Senna crashed. He, he really, the camber changes just upset it completely. So, yeah, I still really enjoy that. Um, I mean, this morning I was in work. No, yesterday I was in work, and I was busy fabricating the exhaust for the Julia, the silver one we're doing, the one we're doing all the work on. So the GTAM replica. Yeah. I was busy making the exhaust, measuring all the lengths, checking it all, and getting that to fit, because I put power steering on the Julia. I know, I know, it's sacrosanct, it shouldn't have power steering. But nowadays, I think no one wants a car without it. So I was trying to get the exhaust through between the power steering and the block <laughs> you know the, the all the uh, people like alpha holics and classic alpha their exhausts are too big to go through the gap they're just too space so was, that was my challenge for this morning before this podcast just making all that work so it's quite quite fun and i still love doing that and this afternoon when i go back i'm playing with the the a computer program for the gear change on the 4C so that the gear change is smoother as you change up and down the gearbox. Right. So we're going into the technical playing one, well, essentially this laptop on now and talking to the computer on the 4C to get that to change gear in a different way so it's a smoother change. But yeah, it's still a challenge and I still love it. Having said that, the majority of income and the business is is the internet now. Right. It's selling arts. Whereas before, I mean, only three years ago, it was roughly 50% workshop and 50% selling parts. It's now three quarters parts and a quarter workshop. And that's not 
that's not purely a COVID thing. That's a, a trend that was happening anyway. That's a trend that's been happening anyway. The, the business is growing still. And you can only get so many cars in a workshop. So you're, you're, you're stuck with how many cars you can get in a workshop. So you can't really grow that much more yeah. than the size of your workshop. Whereas on the internet, you can be as big as you want. <laughs> you know, you, you can be huge. So essentially, that's the way the business is going to go over the next 10 years. Having said that, electric cars, they don't worry me, but they are going to be a challenge. Everyone's going to, everyone still wants personal transport. Yeah. Everyone still wants personal transport. And at the moment, electric cars seem to be the way it's going. I don't personally think it's necessarily the right way to go because of all the environment, environmental impacts of them huge, great batteries. They don't last that long, 10 years maybe. Yeah. And once the battery's knackered, which is bespoke to a car, the car's been thrown away as well because you can't get the battery because 10-year lifespan on products. So we're going to throw away whole cars effectively for lack of batteries. It's, it's, it's not the way I think it should go. I think, personally, that hydrogen cars would be a lot better bet in the long term because you can fill them quite quickly. You know, minutes instead of 20 minutes, half an hour. You can, the byproducts are zero, totally recyclable, right? and you can produce hydrogen at any petrol station. You know, they, can, they, they will develop ways of producing hydrogen in a petrol station because the product is all around you. All you need is electric to the petrol station. Yeah. So I'd like to see that happen, whether it will whether people realise what's happening and how bad it is for the environment, I don't know. But we will come up with something. Yep. And we will want personal transport. So longer term, I think we've got a, a business model that will work. As long as Alpha bring out an electric car. <laughs> which, I mean, when I bought the Stelvio, which like, we've got a Stelvio, my wife's got a Stelvio, and I was looking on the EPO, the parts lookup for the with all the specs. Yeah. And when they, they launched the two litre, it had there obviously 280 horsepower. But in the parts list, there was also another one which had 350 horsepower on the parts list. And I was like, what on earth's that? Turns out it was a light hybrid. Right. And they've never, never bought it out. And this was four years ago, maybe, when the Julia came out. Somewhere around there, I was looking at it. The Julia Stelvia, when they first came out. And they've never done anything with it, even though they bothered to do all the parts diagrams, all that sort of stuff, and we've never seen it. I, I heard only last week or so, I think, that um, that, that two-litre engine as a as half a hybrid powertrain is going into the next Maserati SUV. So that 350 horsepower PHEV drivetrain didn't die. It just never appeared in the Stelvio for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah, which is a shame. But does it tell us where 
Alfa Romeo's going longer term? I don't know. No, I don't. I think the the big thing about the Stellantis merger is that any anybody who can, you know, even attempt to look out more than about eighteen months is guessing. We we know Tonali's coming. We think Bonero's coming shortly after because that's the the five hundred Jeep Renegade replacement um, small SUV. And it looks as though there'll be an alpha version of it at Tichy. But beyond that, it's all guesswork, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Which is, it's interesting. It is. But, you know, do I want to be tuning up electric cars to make them go faster? Or am I just going to be changing brake pads? Hmm. Don't know. I yeah. don't know. Although getting into software and looking at um, TCT gearbox software and stuff is probably the the right set of skills to be to be looking at in terms of performance tuning electric vehicles. It's probably going to be a software thing or, or a strap-on battery. Yeah, mind you, looking at it in a more rational sense, I'm 56 now. I intend to retire by about 65. Nine years, we're going to still have Julia's about. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Julia, the old Julia's and the... Breras and all that sort of thing they're still going to be about so yeah. the thing i'd say is that there's just gonna be fewer people doing them uh, there'll be fewer garages um i i particularly wouldn't want to be going into the garage industry at the moment yeah because it's going to get a lot smaller than it is i think but i do say that very very tentatively there's a lot of of alpha specialists, a lot of the other guys who are out there tend to concentrate on one particular period in alpha's history. <laughs> um, but you seem to cover pretty much everything. That must be a, a a challenge all around in terms of knowing enough about all of them and having the, the tools and the parts. Yeah. Remember, you have to remember that a lot of the specialists, yes, they have one niche, but they do do other stuff. Yeah. I mean, so there's, uh, say, um, let me think, um, what's his name? Does the Alfettas. Alex Jew. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he mainly does Alfettas, but he occasionally does Julia's and other things as well. But you've got to remember, there's only one of him. There's six of us. Yeah. <laughs> so even if, if we all specialised in one model, yeah, we could cover just doing one model, each of them different eras of alphas and that's what we tend to do in the workshop so matt the one of the technicians he tends to do the diesels right so the 1.9s the 2.4s all that sort of thing chris tends to do all the twin sparks adam does the four c's i tend to do a bit of everything but just going and troubleshooting and Simon tends to do the older stuff, the Julia's and all that sort of stuff. So we sort of split it into who knows what they're doing within the workshop. So they all have their little speciality that they know back to front, sideways, et cetera, et cetera. There are really three big specialists in the UK that aren't just one, two-man bands. Yeah. There's us... There's um, Adrian Jardine at Alfred, and there's uh, Ned at Auto Lusso. Yeah. 
and obviously all our spe- all the specialists know each other a lot better than people realize you know i've been to a nightclub with adrian jardine on a really good night out etc cetera, etc cetera. and i've been out with ned for a beer we know each other well and it's like um we all work off each other so if i've got a problem that i haven't seen before i think uh, adrian was doing one of them the other day i'll just ring him and see if he's got any clues on that uh, or if Ned's got a problem, he'll ring me. Or if um, AD at AH Motorsports got a problem, we'll just talk to each other. You know, fairly obviously, they will obviously talk to us a lot about four Cs. Yeah. And you know, if I need something for a SZ, I talk to a- Adrian at some Alpha Eight. So it's a bit of a mafia. <laughs> <laughs> don't think we don't know each other we all know each other very well and we have to because we get very little support from alpha uk they don't like us particularly but i think by doing what we do we add to the brand i mean, we keep it going we add a depth of knowledge that you wouldn't see in a dealer. Yeah, they're doing cars up to three or four years old. Well, and I was going to say that one of the one of the constant complaints we get about dealer service is that there's a cutoff. It's probably not three or four years, but certainly by five, six, seven years old, they either don't really want to know or actively don't want to know. And that that must be that must be good for you in in effect because they're they're directing customers at you, even yeah. if they, even if they don't point you by name it's good for us but it's not good for the mark the mark will be a lot better if people could go into a garage that said alfa romeo and they knew exactly what they were doing in that garage yeah because a lot of the problems people have with alphas would disappear because a lot of the problems are often very simple i mean i've got a car in today or tomorrow uh, it's julia heated rear windscreen isn't working um well it turns out it's the battery's going getting low right because it's not right. being used and part of the alfa romeo's fuel saving system effectively turns off the battery a sorry, effectively turns off the heated rear windscreen, A, when the battery goes low, or B, when the alternator isn't charging as much as it should be. Right. So the strategy of the alternator will be to tend to charge as much as possible when you're off the throttle going down a hill, and then when you're accelerating, it backs off the amount it charges. So it saves fuel by saving producing electricity yeah when you're not needing it almost the very mildest form of hybrid very very mild form of hybrid but i mean uh manufacturers think of all these things that you would know you you wouldn't have thought in a million years they'd bother to do that it's a bit like the vw emission scandal where did they think of doing that from whatever made them think of doing that there's someone in a, a design office that spent weeks thinking of that, 
just to make it save fuel. It's, it's one of those classic things that would come up in a brainstorming meeting and everybody should have gone, yeah, nice idea, but you can't do that. Yeah. Well, it's a bit like the heated rear windscreen on a Stelvio <laughs> or Julia. You shouldn't really have it switched off when the battery voltage goes down. Yeah. When's the battery voltage going to go down? Hmm. When you've just started it in the middle of winter. <laughs> When's it most likely to be frosty? Hmm. Oh, in the middle of winter. <laughs> so that's certainly one of my challenges to see. Well, I'm going to go and see if the Fiat, have, Fiat Alpha have changed the software and have done an update uh, at the factory and then i'll download that to the car to get the heated rear window working i have a feeling they won't because i did one about three or four weeks ago they did a full update and it didn't have it on it so hopefully someone at fiat or alpha will go we need to do an update on the heated rear window on a julia so it works in cold weather <laughs> You have to laugh sometimes, Alpha. <laughs> so you you must have seen quite a few rare and unusual cars over the years that have come through the workshop. Any particular cars that stand out? Okay. Well, some days I have something called Jamie's luck. They all know it at work. You know, it's like I walk out into the workshop, someone brings a car in, I walk out to it, and it magically starts working perfectly. And it will just, I don't know how it happens. But anyway, back in 1988, I bought myself the, my Julia, my 1750 GTV. And I've always known there's something odd about it. Because it's got odd things like Italian indicators. So the indicators on the front are white. It's got all the gauges are in Italian. The bracket that holds the brake servos on the inner wing is hand welded on, not spot welded on. And I've always thought this was a bit odd. So I had a word with Chris Sweet Apple of the Highwood Motor Company. And he came out, had a look at it many years ago. And we realized it was the first 1750 right hand driver for production line. Right. So it's slightly unusual. And they, I just talked to Ken Carrington, who does the dating certificates. And I, got it, I was doing it because I was for the silver one we're building at the moment. So but I asked him to do a dating certificate on my 1750. And it turns out it was made in 1970 well, in uh, Italy. But it wasn't sold by the factory until 1975. And it was sold in Milan in 1975. Now, when I bought it, it had a load of Milan tax discs in it. Right. So that all fitted. So it almost certainly, never find out, but the factory owned it for five years. It was almost certainly a factory test car. Right. Same as luck. Yeah. So it is, it's an interesting car, but it's also the rear panel is off a really late two litre. And it doesn't fit with the car at all. But when you do a, a repair, a body repair, normally you'd overlap the two panels where the rear panel and the rear wing join. 
on this on my car it's joined and they're butt welded as a factory would do right so i just wonder whether it, i wonder whether it would ever ca- it came out of the factory like that as a you know sometime in its history at the factory they put it backwards into some tree somewhere and basically thought oh right we'll put a two litre panel in the back of that and then we'll sell it and then it appeared in the uk in 1977 when it was sold as new by some cheeky person so yes new new old stock yes (laughs) so i really come yeah i do come across some odd things most of which are in my carriage (laughs) i mean then i've got um Sitting next to that, I've got the 75, which I put a 3.2 litre in it. Right. With um, a twin spark gearbox. So it's got nice low ratios. And then I strip that out so it weighs about a ton and it's got 270 horsepower. Is that, so the, is that the one that you had at Snetterton when you were doing the shakedown for the race car? Yes. White one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that one. The one you, when you start with a hammer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you need a hammer. <laughs> and if that doesn't work, you need a bigger hammer. <laughs> yes, I don't think we should probably be saying that. <laughs> but, yeah, I think what happened uh, on that day is the fuel pump decided to eat some corrosion from inside the 30-year-old petrol tank, and it got jammed in the pump. Because on a 75, the fuel comes out the tank, through the pump, and then through the filter. You'd think it might be a sensible idea to run the fuel out the tank, through the filter, and then through the pump. But remember, this is Alfa Romeo. And this is on the car that has the window winder switches in the roof. Yeah, it's perfectly logical. <laughs> everyone thought that was a good idea <laughs> I mean everyone got in the car and immediately knew that the switches were in the roof and 75 is obviously the car you cannot get a cassette out of the cassette player when you're in fifth <laughs> oh, I want to change the cassette yeah let's change that to fourth so I can change the cassette because every time I eject the cassette it hits the gear lever I assume the logic for the window switches was that if you've got your arm out of the window in Italian style, you're not going to bring your arm in to use the window switch on the door handle. So you need to put it somewhere else. Although that does leave you driving no handed, doesn't it? <laughs> okay. Can you give me an explanation for the handbrake then? No, there's no explanation for the handbrake. That, I, the, 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 only, the only thing I've ever seen in a car, which is more bizarre than that is the, um, the ignition key on a Saab in the centre console. I I don't know what you'd have to be smoking to think that's a sensible place to put the, the ignition. True, but then you can have it linked directly to the reverse gear where it looks in the reverse gear. Yeah. But at least they didn't put a, ha- a suitcase in the dash. Some of you will know what I'm talking about there. <laughs> I'll tell you a proper Alfisty know what I'm talking about there, won't it? <laughs> But I mean, I mean, talking of weird things that were way ahead of their time for Alpha, which you don't really think about now. Was it the Alpha 90? It had a section under the bumper that when the pressure built up, air pressure built up in the engine bay, it forced down a spoiler 
under the front bumper. An active splitter. It wasn't really, it was, it was sort of neither active nor <laughs> passive. It just sort of basically more pressure above, forced this thing down, and it became a splitter under the bumper. I mean, and also, I mean, we all forget. First car with common rail diesel, Alfa Romeo. First car with uh, direct injection petrol, Alfa Romeo. First car with variable valve timing, Alfa Romeo. We're so, we, I mean, sometimes I think this is part of the problems we get with alleged reliability is that the stuff that Alfa Romeo do is on the leading edge of what can be done yeah. or is being done. I mean, I think it was two years after the direct injection came out in the 156 that it came out with Mercedes. I think somewhere like that. And um, common, well, common rail diesel, everyone's got it. Yeah. But I mean, that was developed by Fiat powertrains and went into Alphas. And then, of course, what did they do? Sell it. I think they were slightly smarter than that. I think they licensed it. I think they still make money from every common rail diesel that's sold. Or they did for quite a long time afterwards. Well, so Bosch had to pay them royalties, I think. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You know more than me on that one. But if, imagine, well, imagine if they still developed the whole system. Yeah. But being Italian, could they, would they? Who knows? Yeah, will they, will they get a chance in the future? That's the, you know, the, it's not just shared platforms from now on it's you know the um, small suvs got the 1.3 firefly phev powertrain in it so the the fiat engine with the it's 280 horsepower i think by the time you combine the uh, the petrol engine and the batteries um but peugeot have a 1.2 pure tech hybrid powertrain that effectively does the same thing. So will it make sense for Stellantis to have a 1.2 and a 1.3 small car PHEV powertrain? Probably not. Who who knows which one it will be? I, I certainly don't. No. I certainly don't. But I mean, I personally, um, I'm, I'm going to miss the big naturally aspirated engines like the 3.2. It's a stunning engine. And will, say, my son get the same enjoyment out of cars and driving as I did when he's driving a washing machine? It's just soulless in some ways. Yeah. I mean, again, I was talking to Ted, as we do regularly, and um, he was just saying he had a Golf, and it was essentially a white good. And he's talking about a Golf R here. Right. It's not, not, we're not talking a little wussy, little 1300, not going to drag the skin off. He was saying that a 160 mile hour car was not engaging. You can't say that of a Julia. Yeah. Or, you know, a Julietta. You know, there's something about it that makes it an alpha, which most marks haven't got. Well, we've, we've already embarrassed Ted by calling him a former alpha racer and and talking about his indiscretions on the Nürburgring, so we probably shouldn't say how much he likes his Merc, because that would embarrass him even further. 
I think I might be able to persuade him out racing again this year Very in good. the Mito. I think I've got, depending on what happens with the Alfa Romeo Championship and COVID, I've got uh, Ricardo Lacelli and Ted both volunteering to drive, surprisingly. I don't know yeah. why they want to do that, <laughs> but we're hoping for a bit better season than last year, which was basically horrible. Although I think given the, the disruption to last year, there was still there was plenty of promise there. It's quick. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, the Mito is definitely fast. And we've spent the winter fettling. We haven't bothered to go for any more power yet. But we've been, well, as you saw, as you've seen the um, Owners Club magazine, um, we've been changing the front geometry so we get more traction and grip at the front. And we've also been working with the suspension people closely and they've revalved and re-changed spring rates on the front and done loads of stuff on the front shock absorbers for us, which hopefully uh, will make it a lot quicker. We've also redesigned the underside of the car. So we've st basically stopped any air going from the engine bay above the splitter going back out under the car right so we're hoping that will hope help keep the front on the floor as well because we've had we've had very little problems with rear grip we've had masses of grip from the rear which has always surprised me because i've always thought the problem with the mito would be the rear suspension because it's um primitive right it's a beam axle and you're relying on the strength of the axle to keep the wheels where you want them, essentially. Uh, but the axle is also is designed by Alfa Romeo to, flat, to flex and give you rear steer. So, and you, if you dial that out, then you also, because the two sides are joined together by the beam, you affect the amount of uh, roll stiffness you've got at the rear. So you're always in a challenging situation on the rear end of a Mito, which is why something like a GTV, 916 GTV, yeah. double wishbone rear suspension, should absolutely trounce it around a circuit because it's a lot better suspension system. But we've always had the problem where we've had loads of grip at the rear and the front has always been the issue. So most of the winter has been spent making the front of the mito go around corners when it should do but as as you saw last year we weren't far off the pace with it no no so there wasn't much more to do and i think with a bit of luck a bit more testing we could do very well but there is some serious stuff there's some seriously nice stuff out in that championship yeah yeah and I'm, I'm busy trying to persuade as many alpha owners as possible that it's worth the effort to grab themselves like a twin spark or something and go out and try it. It's great fun. There's real camaraderie in the pits. Everyone there is willing to help you, I've found. And, you know, it's a nice, it's a nice thing to do. So well, we're, nice. we're certainly, we're going to make a lot of fuss about um, Colin Cunniff, who won our virtual racing championship and Paul Plant's giving him a, 
a run out in a Twin Spark Cup car for the the opening round. So he's going from sim racer to odds test to on the grid in the the ARCA Championship. So hopefully, if we can make a lot of fuss about that, that'll encourage a few more people to say, actually, I can do this. I can have a go. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, I don't consider my self a driver. I'm, I'm more of an engineer, but I, I think that the more people that do that will help the club in the longer term because it's just it is part of Alfa Romeo racing, yeah. very much part of Alfa Romeo. I've taken up quite a lot of your time. The, the other area I wanted to talk about was you know, most people who aren't your customers probably know you from the column in the magazine, which you, you talked about a minute ago. How did you get involved writing for the magazine? Oh, Andrew Brown. We used to go to the section meetings maybe 15 years ago. And obviously, go there and all the members of the local section wanted to talk about one thing. Oh, alphas. And obviously they get a bit technical and then they get into a little conversation on this, that or the other. And we eventually, Andy and Drew said, well, what about doing an article in the Owners Club magazine? I went, well, okay. And so that's how it happened. Andrew Brown, the last, ed- last one editor? Was yeah, it? I think yeah. it's okay. Liz, Liz last, then yeah. Andrew before that. So, so he asked me to write an article and then it became six a year. Yeah, yeah. And it always feels like doing my homework. <laughs> I have to admit, you're going to hate me for saying this, but it is when you receive that email come from you, I feel that feeling like I go to school when the teacher gave you your physics homework. It was like, oh, I've got to do that again. So if, Luckily, if you enjoy that, I can always mark it and send it back. <laughs> I thought you did. <laughs> I noticed, like, was it the one before last you edited some bits out? No, I can't imagine. You that did. It was something about the French. It was probably just to make it fit. Oh, yeah, 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 it wasn't. <laughs> so, so you, obviously, you, you write about a, a, a wide range of subjects. Some of it's, you know, sort of fun, gossipy stuff about what's happening in the workshop, some of it's much more technical. What sort of stuff do you enjoy writing about most, chore or not? Well, as I said, I've treated it all like doing my homework. <laughs> and it really depends on what I'm feeling like on the day. I always find it really difficult to get inspiration. And I'll often spend a day or so wandering around the workshop going, what can I write about? And I tend to write the more technical articles when there's something interesting in the workshop, technical where I can write about it and take pictures. But if there's nothing, if we're just doing a service on a Julieta, say, yeah. or 10 of them, you sort of wonder around, okay, well, we'll do something a bit more general. So what goes in the magazine is dictated by what goes into the workshop. Yeah. So the more interesting stuff in the workshop, the more interesting stuff technically in the magazine article. It's interesting because I, I think the... The two that people talk to me most about are the the one that you did on the the innards of the TCT gearbox a couple of years ago, and the two litre conversion on the seventeen fifty TBI. And I suspect this month's suspension one might fall into the same category. But the other one that they talk about a lot is the workshop move one, which was just it was classic classic Jamie, nothing technical, just 
what what a ball ache it was moving from one workshop to the other and but it's it just was mayhem total mayhem the mechanics essentially had been let loose with lots of toys and hammers and sledgehammers and been told we need to get from a to b we need to do it as quickly as possible it's up to you to do, do what you can I mean, as I wrote in the article, the sight of them riding down the road without a light fork truck license on the front of the forks was about the limit of what I could take. And I had to discipline them to stop them doing it. But it's really, really hard to discipline your staff when you're laughing. <laughs> well, and, I, and I suspect that. 50% of the reason people enjoyed that so much was just laughing at other people's pain because people like that. But it was just so entertaining. It was just so well written. It was brilliant. I, I, I'm, trust me, I'm not moving again. <laughs> <laughs> the pain was too great. <laughs> uh, thanks very much for your time, Jamie. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been my pleasure, Guy. And I'd like to thank everyone who's been interested in my articles and been to my business. I'd like to thank them very much for their custom and their interest in Alpha Romeo. Brilliant. Thanks, Jamie. Cheers, guys. Well, that's it for this episode. We'll be back in two weeks' time on Valentine's Day to talk about, appropriately enough, the marriage between Peugeot and FCA to form the new Stellantis Group. I'll be joined by Chairman John Griffiths and Board Member David Faithful to look at some of the challenges facing the new organisation, some of the key personnel involved, and some of the things we expect to happen over the next couple of years. All of that ties in with an article which should be in the magazine arriving on your doorsteps the same weekend. As usual, that'll be available from all of your favourite podcast sources from about 1.30 on the 14th. So until then, stay safe.